Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast interview series dedicated to literature in translation and the art of translation itself. It is organised by Timothy Matthews, Professor of French at University College London, and myself, Simon Cook, a Fellow in English at Wolfson College, Oxford. The subject of the first podcast is the German émigré author W.G. or V.G. Sebald. From the late 1980s until his death in 2001, Sebald emerged as one of the most celebrated and vital voices in world literature. One of the remarkable features of his place in literary history is that, while almost all of his literary work was written in his native German, the translations of his work, including The Emigrants, The Rings of Saturn and Austerlitz, have played a pivotal role in his lionisation and occupy a central place in contemporary English as well as German literature. We are honoured to have two of Seibart's English translators as guests for the podcast. Anthea Bell, OBE, is renowned for her English translations from French, Danish and Polish as well as German. English language readers owe to her the pleasure of translations ranging from Asterix to works of Sigmund Freud, from Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales to the works of Stefan Zweig, and of course, her celebrated translations of Seibald's work. These include On the Natural History of Destruction, Campo Santo and Austerlitz, which won the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize in 2001. Joe Catling is a lecturer in German at the University of East Anglia, where she was a friend and colleague of Seibald's. Alongside her work on modern German language literature, Jo has been pivotal in making Seibald's estate viable for research at the German Literary Archive at Marbach, is co-editor with Richard Hibbert of Saturn's Moons, a W.G. Seibald handbook, and is at work on translation of Seibald's ostensibly academic works, including Logie in einem Landhaus, which is forthcoming as a place in the country. Your host is Timothy Matthews, a professor of French and comparative criticism at UCL. Tim is an active translator as well as writer, editor and teacher. His translations from the French include works by Gérard Massey and Michel Welbeck, and his research and teaching explores literature in the arts both in French and in many other languages and cultures. He teaches on UCL's MA in Translation Studies. He's editor of Tradition Translation Trauma, published in 2011, and his forthcoming book explores Giacometti through correspondences and relations with writers including Beckett, Nottebohm, and indeed W.G. Seibart. Well, thank you very much. I just wanted to ask you both to begin with, uh, what drew you into translating Zebald at all? Anthea, if I could start with you. Well, I'd read all his previous books, and some of them I had read in Michael Hulse's excellent translations, mm -hmm. The Emigrants and the Rings of Saturn in particular. Yeah. I'd read them in both languages because I was on the jury panel of the Schlegel Teak mm -hmm. German Translation Prize mm -hmm. for about nine years at the time. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Oh, I was surprised and delighted to be asked to translate Austerlitz. Mm. Max's new agent, Andrew Wiley, was looking for a new publisher for him at the time. And the first brief, after Max had looked at, I believe from him, it was six sample translations from Austerlitz, mm -hmm. which was not finished at the time, he was mm -hmm. still working on it. Mm. And I was the lucky one whose sample Max liked. Mm -hmm. And so I translated 30 pages from what I think of as the Welsh idyll when the schoolboy Austerlitz goes to his friend Gerald's home mm -hmm. in the holidays. Mm -hmm. And this is the period in the book before Austerlitz has discovered his identity, isn't Indeed, it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. What was it like... Um, um, picking up, as it were, after such a noted translation by Michael Holzer, what was it like... Um, what, what were your feelings about his translation of being oh, a, the, another translator? As I 
may have told you already, yes. I think, um, at first I was rather horrified because you don't go around poaching somebody else's author if you're a translator. <laughs> and um, uh, I do not know why, but Max wanted a, a change of translator at that time. But I did, ex I did demur, actually, because mm. I thought mm. I was being asked, uh, the, the sample I'd done had mm. been from Luftkrieg und Literatur, which comes out in English as On the Natural History of Destruction. Mm. Um, and I had been told that Michael was too busy mm. to do that. Mm. All of a sudden, Harville wanted it because mm. they felt it was topical. Mm. The uh, NATO bombings of Kosovo were going on at the time. Then they were all over and it wasn't top particularly topical anymore. <laughs> and then I found out that really, it was first of all, before that book was translated, the new publisher, which turned out to be Hamish Hamilton at Penguin, was going to do the novel Austerlitz. So Max and I set to work on that. I've got another question for Anthony, if I may. Um, I just wondered, um, w w picking up on what you were saying before, uh, what it was like working on a, on a, on Austerlitz while he was still writing it. Oh, fascinating! Because it was weeks, no, it was months. We started it in January, the sample, and then um, it was early summer before I had the complete manuscript. I'd had chapters, chunks at a time, and when it arrived, it was a day of wonderful fine weather. I sat in my garden and I read the whole thing through and Max had been saying to me, he was a very modest man, on and off, he was saying, I don't know if this is any good really. <laughs> and I, said, I could see how good it was. Did he read your translation while he was composing? Yes, what we did, we didn't do it by email, a translator would correspond by email with most authors these days, <laughs> sending an email attachment of a draft of chapters. But not Max, he was very anti-computers. Mm. Joe, as a colleague of his, may know if his story that there was a computer in his office but he'd never taken it out of the box was true, do you, Joe? Oh, I'm not sure if he even let it into the office. <laughs> the story I heard from people using the office while he was away was that there was no computer, so they couldn't actually do anything. They were associate tutors. In, in, um, so in, there, was, there was no computer in there that, that I remember. There was a cable for the computer, yes. which he took great exception to. In Max's mind, there was no computer in. Anyway, it's a, it's a bit like Schrodinger's cat, I feel. <laughs> yes, no, he would complain about how the library increasingly required you to need a computer mm. to browse it, and he mm. would just sort of appear at my door mm. saying, oh, I can't make this thing work <laughs> when I go in the library. Okay, I'll look it up. What does he want to know? So, um, no computer no. in his office, certainly. So <laughs> so he, he, was, he, was, he was telling the truth. Yes, he was. <laughs> and we worked there for... I would translate a draft of several chapters and send them to him, and he would read and make comments and we would discuss points. And meanwhile, he would be writing more of the book and sending it to me. So we had a two-way traffic most of the time. Can I ask a question just about that? I'd be fascinated to know whether he wrote the book in sequence or whether he wrote some later bits first. I don't, it seems to be in sequence. Yeah, that's sort of what I thought. He, I don't, re don't recollect his making many alterations to what mm. had gone before. Yeah, certainly if you look at the manuscripts, that's the yes. sense you get that it's, he, that it's more or less in one, you know, in one doctor's. He had a wonderful old typewriter, the sort, it must have been a manual, where the letters G and D 
get gunk inside them after a time. You don't often see that, but you can tell a manual if you get a typescript like that. And uh, But his handwriting in his letters is perfectly beautiful. Mm-hmm. For our listeners who may not yet have read the book, and I hope they're going to when they do hear this, um, Austerlitz is, is, a, is a very long, continuous narrative, isn't it? Um, in which uh, uh, the central figure learns more and more about his past and his the, the his involvement of his parents in Tirishenstadt in the concentration camp there. Um, but it's a very slow process where he discovers uh, his past and the way the suppression of his past has affected him. So it, it, it does unfurl in a kind of sequence, although the, the memories go back and backwards and forwards, and indeed there are a number of different voices that come into it all the time that take each other over in a quite an alarming way. Nonetheless, it is forward-moving all the time, I think. So, I mean, it, it, your question, um, Joe, is, is interesting, I think, to, to, to wonder, I mean, how he was composing this book. So he, it appears from what you say that he wasn't changing the order on this. I'm sure he did it in other texts, but on this occasion he was continuing in, in the forward movement. Indeed, and really he has two narratives there. Mm. He has the narrative of Jacques Austerlitz, the central mm. character himself, and he has the narrative of the anonymous narrator, but it is somebody rather like Zebat himself, yes. as in the rings of Saturn. And uh, Austerlitz gets to know the narrator of the framework narrative and tells his story in the first person, Mm -hmm. every now and then, say, uh, Max puts in, said Austerlitz, Mm. said Austerlitz, and he was very, very doubtful about this. Mm. It's been put to me by one of Joe's colleagues, Professor Jean Bowes-Byer, that um, he might have done this with the English version in mind, because in English we do not have the neat little trick that German has of using the subjunctive to indicate indirect speech. You can go on forever in German mm-hmm. using the subjunctive, mm-hmm. but in English you've got to remind the reader now and then. Mm-hmm. That, alas, Jean came up with this theory before we could ever put it to him. <laughs> He'd probably have denied it, but that didn't necessarily mean anything. Did you find when you were translating that you put the said Austerlitz or the various other people, the said Vera, said this and the other, they come quite a lot, don't they? They do. Uh, it's almost a litany, I feel. Mm. Uh, did you find you were putting them in, in the same place or mm. according to your own rhythm of, of the English? Uh, pretty much. I mean, um, I know proverbially you wait forever in German for the verb to come at the end of the sentence, <laughs> but apart from that, there's really not a lot of difference in sentence structure. And I uh, don't remember consciously doing, changing it much, because usually the flow would be pretty much the same in English. Mm. Mm. Joe, have you, you have translated the, the essays, haven't you? You worked that on, on that aspect yes, of his writing I'm more. I'm working than, on those, that's right, and, yes. And currently, yeah, yes. they're about to be published, aren't they? Mm. And, uh, um, how, how have you found that? I mean, what are the particular problems in translating... A, a writer who turns his mind to literary criticism or perhaps blurs the boundaries between the two in his own way and all that? Uh, they do blur the boundaries. I mean, the chronology is quite interesting because there are three volumes that I'm translating, and in fact I'm more or less translating them in inverse order. The first one that I'm translating is the last uh, the last 
of them, which came out um, about a year before the essays that Anthea has translated as on the natural history of mm -hmm. destruction. Um, it's called Luji in einem Landhaus, which is quite a difficult title to translate. The title we settled on with the publishers is A Place in the Country. Um, we thought of other, I think my first attempt at a translation was something like a rural retreat, because there is very much this sense of, of seclusion. And um, it's a volume about six Alemannic writers. Now, you can't uh, see this on the microphone, but I'm putting Alemannic in inverted commas, because two of them are Swiss authors, one from the 19th century, one from the early 20th century, Gottfried Keller and Robert Walser. Um, one is more often thought of as a French writer, but is perhaps also a Swiss writer, but writing in French, which is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, and the most uh, clearly Alemannic writer, Al Alemannic writing is, is the sort of southwest of Germany and Switzerland. The mm. Alemanni are an, an old Germanic tribe, like the Swabians, the Bavarians, and so on. Um, so it's that particular area of the sort of Baden-Württemberg and, and edging over into Switzerland and also into Alsace. So it's a region very, very close to Max Sebald's heart or to his origins. He grew up just over the border in Bavaria, but that part of Bavaria, as I was recently told by the former director of the uh, literary archive in Marbach, who is a Swabian through and through, uh, Professor Ott, uh, he absolutely claimed, uh, we were talking about Zebalt and the time he'd visited Marbach, he absolutely claimed him as a Swabian. He said, no, <laughs> definitely, it's Swabia there, and you can hear it in his accent and in his intonation. And so, yes, we think of his South German accent, and it's really more of an... Uh, an Alemannic rhythm, perhaps even than a Bavarian one. So there's a so it's a region he identified with very much. And um, one of these writers, Johann Peter Hebel, who is perhaps not known very much at all in the English-speaking world, um, is writing at the time of the French Revolution yeah. um, and writing partly in dialect. So one of the challenges in this book is is that there is a most of a rather wonderful poem called Die Vergänglichkeit, sort of transience, um, a sort of vanitas poem. Uh, large chunks of this in the original Alemannic. Um, but these essays do really blur the boundary between the creative and the critical. He's writing them after the rings of Saturn, before Austerlitz, kind of at a, a sort of a crossroads, I think. Um, but he had always been a critic. He was a critic before he started publishing creative works and so I think very much the two things inform each other. So are there any particular problems posed by translating a work that crosses the boundaries between critical and creative writing? Um, yes <laughs> um, and you'll want to know what they are. Um, In general. Yeah. Well, one of, the, one of the particular problems about translating an author now as well known in the English-speaking world as Zebald is that readers who've read Michael Holtz's translations, they've read Anthea's translations, they've read Michael Hamburger's translations, they have a clear idea of what Zebald sounds like. So um, you have to get the Zebald sound, um, that's probably going to be more of a problem with the with the uh, with the other essays, which where less of that comes through. Um, but you also have to kind of stray, stay true to the academic argument that's in there. Um, as someone who's 
previously only really done academic translation, I find myself now doing literary translation, which is an interesting place to be put in. Um, and I think where it does also make a difference is the cadence and the rhythm, which you touched mm -hmm. on earlier, of, of Max's voice. And uh, I was privileged to work with him for quite a long time. I've also heard him read in German with this wonderful cadencing, all of those long sentences absolutely falling into place in German when he reads them because that's his rhythm, that's his breathing pattern, he doesn't run out of breath like anybody else when they're trying to read his sentences. It's all perfectly there. And he cared a lot about this, this rhythm. He's, uh, an in, there's an interview somewhere where he says, well, the trouble is these translators they don't, don't they read it aloud I mean you know how hard can it be you've got to get the rhythm right okay he so then quite, you've got to get the rhythm yes. right yeah he, he was quite right Joe you've got yeah, to be absolutely. reading aloud in your head the whole yes. time yes no well I do read aloud in my, yes. in, my, in my head I know a colleague in Marbach said well I haven't heard you reading aloud so it's just as well we're in a library but you do have to hear it in your head mm -hmm. so that you're, you're very aware of trying to get this literary cadence as well as uh, yeah as well as the the critical argument across mm. and that may affect the the choices you make um you know for so for a purely if there's such a thing as a purely academic exercise you'd be really looking at the at the accuracy and for this there's a stylistic effect there that you want as well because it's about because you can hear it because you think why is he used that word actually yeah, and it may be the sound rather than the meaning. Stylistic effects, I'm sure, are, are in inflecting and affecting and, and pushing the argument forward in a number of different ways. Absolutely, aren't they? Yeah. absolutely. I mean, that's a very large part as well of, of, of Zabart's reception of other literature, yeah. the passages he quotes, yeah. uh, and his own way of going about things. So that, you know, in looking at his academic essays, we're looking a bit, especially in these ones on, on Austrian literature, which I'm just starting to translate. Um, we're sort of looking in the workshop, we're looking at the authors he, he loved, the authors whose style he liked, seeing what he's seeing in them, seeing what he's doing. And of course there are lots of quotations in here as well, so that's, that's another problem. It's mm. the same as having the different voices. You've actually got another author's voice coming through, mm. and so you want to make that distinction. You don't want to translate it all in the same style in your own voice. You need to, to have those two voices, and there are different ways of, of going about that. I want to come back to quotations, something we talked about before, isn't it? But while, mm. while we're on the subject of, of rhythm, um, it's a, it, it is, uh, I want to ask you, Anthea, a little bit about, more about that. I mean, it, it's a very, it's by definition a very subjective experience, isn't it? Linguistic rhythm, and I suppose its relation to musicality in some way. Indeed. The, the, these are very subjective things, and, it, and although one's aiming to do, to, to, to translate, to repeat the effects of the original in the other language, um, Rhythms in different languages don't work the same way, do they? No, but it's uh, uh, one thing. Joe was mentioning the length of Max's sentences, mm. and you didn't mess about with his long sentences because there was a reason for them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. the reason was in the form of the whole thing. And notoriously, in his account of Theresienstadt, there is a single sentence which is nine pages long mm -hmm. with a couple of little illustrations in the middle of it, but still it's nine pages long. Mm -hmm. And as I was first drafting it, a page and a half in, I unthinkingly put a full stop. I took it out at once. I knew he wouldn't want it there. Uh, the whole point of the climax of that was that that section described the 
efforts, the busy bureaucracy, pointless bureaucracy of the Nazis, mm. trying to make Theresienstadt look like a holly, happy holiday camp for Jews. And uh, as they did for more than one visiting delegation of Red Cross people and so on. And it is the pointlessness of it. There's quite a lot of the Nazi terminology in it too. And he made some alterations to some of that, particularly for the English version, because it was going to be very, very difficult to get to the same effect of the clumsy, great, clunking titles that the Nazis made up, equivalent to old German army titles, but much longer and unnecessarily complicated. <laughs> the, uh, the rhythm, well, rhythm in language is just so important. And that is why the, the reading aloud in the head, or even out loud, really. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm doing it the whole time, whoever I'm translating. And it will differ mm. from author to author, because you are trying to catch the author's voice the whole mm. time. Mm. And Max's was, of course, a fascinating voice to try to catch. Mm. I was particularly intrigued reading The Rings of Saturn, because... Uh, the Suffolk coastline that he describes were the scenes of my own youth. Mm. And to see his melancholy cultivated Central European mind bent on the East Anglian coastline <laughs> was something quite new and, and fascinating. No, absolutely. As, as a fellow East Anglian, I can certainly relate to that. Yeah, definitely. The way it makes you see it through different eyes. It's wonderful. I want to stick a little bit longer with the long sentences, if I may, and the whole mm. question of rhythm. Mm. Um, because... Uh, I mean, I come back to it as such a subjective thing, isn't it? And a, a long sentence is going to be affecting different readers in different ways as well. There's a certain kind of pile-up, obviously, that, could, that happens in long sentences, isn't there? And, and there's also the arbitrary things that he, that Zabel brings together in all of them. And um, So I feel one's getting lost in, in the multiplicity of associations that come up. Yes, uh, but, but, but the rhythm of the sentence is nonetheless carrying you mm, through, and you do yes. know where you're going, even though you, you don't mm, necessarily want to go do. there. And for instance, in his um, meditations on the old institutions of London stations, yes. the old layout of London, you see boundaries shifting the whole time between past and future, dream and reality. Mm -hmm. Meditation, melancholy, mm. and there's usually very often uh, dying fall, a melancholy fall towards the end of a long passage. Yes, that, yes. That's a bit yes. of a generalisation, mm. but mm. that certainly mm. was how I felt. Mm. Uh, he was very scrupulous, was Max, about the phrasing he used. Was it bleach fields or was it bleaching fields? Mm. And I looked it up in the complete Oxford Dictionary and gave him the original, which I think was bleach fields. Mm. So that settled that one. <laughs> but we had many, a long discussion, I won't call it an argument because it was perfectly amicable, about quite ordinary terms, where he is meditating on whether vegetables can think, for instance, <laughs> and considering it possible. But he um, was thinking, he does just the very common German word, Haustier, which you automatically translate as pet. Now, Max was dead against this. He didn't like it. He thought that, um, it, I think he probably thought it was demeaning to the animals. And he had mm. a point. Mm. And we tossed that back and forth for between half a dozen letters, I think. Oh, 
I forget what we came down with in the end, but um, it, um, if you go to ask Joe a question, I'll look it up <laughs> and you can come back to me. <laughs> Perhaps we can talk a bit about quotations, um, yeah. because uh, the, the fiction is full of quotations as well, isn't it? Absolutely. And, uh, and indeed it becomes more and more um, difficult to work out, sometimes anyway, it becomes more and more confused. Uh, which voice is, is, has got set a stage in the fiction. So I just mean it has to do with the, with the quotations and voices coming into the argument and all that. So I just wondered how you felt doing it in a, with regard to an academic text. Um, well, with a pure academic text, as it were, you have the quotation with a footnote. And that's the case in the two volumes of Essays on Austrian Literature. Most of the time you get the footnote. Um, yeah, it's, it's usually pretty clear. So then it becomes a publisher's decision as to whether you're going to leave that quotation in the original and then have a translation of it afterwards, which is, of course, going to extend the length of the book rather con considerably. With something like uh, Logie in einem Landhaus, or indeed the fictional texts, um, the quotations are part of that interweaving, uh, so they're part of the flavour, they're part of the voice, but with a different accent, if you like. Um, so there's one essay from uh, Place in the Country which has been published, which is the Robert Walser essay. And there I was very fortunate to have Susan Bernofsky's translations. And the essay has appeared as a preface to her translation of one of Walser's novels, The Tanners. And so therefore, if I was quoting from The Tanners, I absolutely wanted um, Susan's translation because the reader of this volume will have Susan Bernofsky's Walser in their ears and so um, we collaborated quite a lot and I there were one or two Middleton translations that, that I took but the Bonofsky was the one I went with which worked pretty well most of the time but there were just one or two occasions when um, her valsa was more jokey than or the language she was using was kind of more jokey than what um, Max's valsa or what Max was doing with the valsa text so you know, you, you have to sort of tweak it. Um, in the essay on Gottfried Keller, there's large chunks of De Grüne Heinrich, and there is a translation called the Green Henry, Green Henry um, which I'm drawing on, but I may end up adapting it, just because the, the rhythm then, Max has chosen his passages very carefully. He sometimes adapted them without quite telling you so, and in the fiction he does that all the time, of course, um, where the published translation, the rhythm just isn't the same as the way it's coming out, so it doesn't quite fit. So these are these are things that I'm still sort of negotiating for the for the final draft, which is the stage I'm now. In addition to altering the rhythm of a translation, would he also alter the original quotation? Sometimes, yes. And it's not clear whether that's deliberate or um, whether he's using a different edition. I mean, you do kind of need to be quite scholarly about it and try and check his text against um, the text he was using, and I've catalogued his library, so I'm in the fortunate position of, of knowing um, mostly which text he's been working from. Not always because, you know, if you're writing an essay, you go for the text that's nearest, and if you're not going to go home for it, you might use the one in the library. So it shifts a bit. I discovered in the uh, quotation of the, or in fact, one of the Dutch, trans the Dutch translators who's working on this discovered that in the transcription of the Alemannic poem that I mentioned earlier, um, it looks quite different 
in the version that she was looking at. And I've checked his manuscript, and in fact, every time there's an unt, and there's an unt meaning and at the beginning of every line, he's just put an ampersand, which is one of his favourite mm-hmm. sort of pieces of punctuation. You find this all the time in his, in his manuscripts. And then it's been transcribed back as a full unt instead of an un with an apostrophe. So again, those are kind of publishers... Yeah. decisions that has to be made. But yes, he, he does vary texts. If um, I may say so, he was very scrupulous in quoting English. When he quoted yeah. from Hamlet, I knew he was using the Arden edition, which is what most people would go for. Okay. And copy editors queried the spelling here and there, quotations from Hamlet. Uh-huh. And I said, look, I can tell from the way Max spells it that he's using the Arden edition, yeah. which I have on my own Right, gels. yes, yes, yes. I know there's been discussion before, but uh, I want to come back to the fact that he, he sometimes he would possibly would change quotations, you know, without mm. without necessarily the original. I mean, without necessarily mm. attributing that. I mean, I wondered how you felt about that as as translators. I know that people take different approaches. I wonder how either of you would 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 cope with knowing that the quotation you're given to translate isn't the one in the original book. Well, I know translators differ on this <laughs> because I know that Michael Hulse in in the transcript of an interview that Zaymark yeah. gave, for, and indeed in, in Michael Hulse's own article, has uh, has commented about an, an argument that uh, a friendly argument that he and Zaymark hmm. had about quoting Conrad and the, and the ethics mm-hmm. of that. I just um, wondered what you thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I that the I think that the author is right, probably, and that the text you translate is the text you have on the page. Um, Admittedly, this this does raise some mm. some problems when you're translating an academic text. For example, in the in the essay on Rousseau, and I've discussed this with a French translator who takes a slightly different view, but he's writing for a different audience. Um, Max has changed the trees, so Rousseau has mm. got oui, um, which is box, and Max has got bucher, which is books, beach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not books, but but beach. Uh. Um, now, Max knew his trees. Yes, he was very good on trees. He was very good on trees. Mm-hmm. So the question for me is why has he changed the trees, mm-hmm. not has he made a mistake? I've also you know, gone back to the original Rousseau. The French translator has, has then just quoted the Rousseau. I'm going to have to do it differently. There's no footnote to say that this is, you know it's a quote from Rousseau, but there's no footnote to take you to the edition. So in that sense, you're not going to check it, whether I can then have a translator's footnote somewhere going, it's not my mistake, which is, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you always want to, to cover your back. But I, you know, my view is that he's changed that for a reason. Mm-hmm. I think in an academic essay, it, it does become problematic, though. And the, the French translator or, or the publisher also gave an example from um, the passage in Austerlitz about the Bibliothèque Nationale mm-hmm. in France and the trees growing in it. And uh, they said, oh, well, he got that wrong. We had to change it. I go, what do you mean he got it wrong and you had to change it? They said, well, they're not whatever they are. They're something else. And a French reader will know. So we just changed that. Interesting. I can't believe you changed it. Um, I had a very interesting little oddity when translating on the Natural History of Destruction, the book which begins with the lectures on the Allied bombings at the end of the Second World War. He delivered them in Switzerland. He got a lot of reaction to them and wrote another chapter about the reaction he got. That book in the original German then had an essay on Alfred Andersch 
And in that, Max didn't like Andrzej, actually. <laughs> he criticised his language and quoted. And now I had to go to the existing English translation. Max complained that the writing was infelicitous. Now the English translation was by the late Rafe Mannheim, who never said anything infelicitous in his life. <laughs> and I pointed this out to Max, and he did rephrase that whole thing because it was much too strong. To, um, to go yeah. with the quotation. Okay, yes, that's interesting. Yeah. I suppose if, 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 if Zebas is changing something, you know, from the Rousseau in German, he might be doing that for reasons of sound. You know, it's a more interesting Box word, part, part, of mm. the, part of the rhythm. I just, <laughs> I mean, no, it's, it's not... I mean, it does have an extra syllable. It does, but yes. I don't, yes, I don't or, think in that case... Or, what I mean to say is, is, you know, sometimes he might be doing it for that, in which case... Mm. You'd have to be thinking about if you're going going over to the English, but thinking we know about about that. You know, perhaps I should mm. be choosing a tree that sounds rhythmically right, you know, mm. rather than think mm. about anything else at all. Actually, I've got an example right here. I found the passage I was looking for, but his moths, mm. oh, yes. with which he was absolutely fascinated. He loved moths. I happen to have a full-blown moth phobia. I run screaming from them. I used to get my poor sons to throw heavy dictionaries at them. And I don't he, like them either. <laughs> and he has, in the Welsh Idyll of Austerlitz, the wonderful character of great uncle Alfonso, who is also fascinated by moths. And um, he teaches the young Austerlitz and his friend Gerald about them, and he lists them. Austerlitz is saying, I don't recollect now exactly what kinds of night-winged creatures landed there beside us. Perhaps they were china marks, dark porcelains and marbled beauties, scarce silver lines or burnished brass, green foresters and green adelers, white plumes, light arches, old ladies and ghost moths, but at any rate we counted dozens of them so different in structure and appearance that neither Gerald nor I could grasp it all. Now, in the German, not all of the moths are quite the same as the German names for them because you do not always have in both languages a vernacular name for a plant or animal. Yeah. And um, Max decided to leave out the death's head hawk moth because he thought it sounded so much worse in English. <laughs> <laughs> and he left that out entirely. And I had once tried to overcome my phobia by the method whereby, allegedly, you familiarise yourself with the object of your irrational horror. And after a bit, you get to like it. That just made me a bit worse about butterflies, which I'd got over when I was about 12, so I gave it up. It did not work. <laughs> but as a result, as a kind of displacement exercise, I had been collecting up the beautiful names of the English moths in the oh. vernacular. And so I, when there were one or two of the German ones that have no well-known vernacular English, I gave Max my list and I said, do you fancy any of these? And we put in one or two replacements and left out the death said hawk moth. Yes. Well, it's wonderful also to be able to, you know, consult him and his, his own very oh, strong grasp yes, of English. Yes. Uh, Yes. There's a passage of fish in the in the mm. Rousseau essay, which aren't from Rousseau, they're, mm. they're Max's, mm. and I had quite fun with those. Mm. I'm just the, I'm just going to read the German so that mm. you can, 
hear the alliteration, if you like. Um, so, größere und kleine, Rotaugen und Rotfedern, Elritzen und Lauben, Haseln und Hechte, Saiblinge und Forellen, Welse, Zander und Baden und Schleiern und Eschen und Karauschen. Okay, so I looked all, all, all of these up and then I had great fun rearranging them so that I got them back into the pairs and with that extra pair and, the, uh, and trying to get the, the same rhythm. Um, I don't unfortunately have my English with me, but yeah. You can um, hear them swimming along in that, you? can hear them swimming along. Yeah. The, the image is actually of them, them sort of uh, hanging at different levels yes. in the water, like on a coloured mm -hmm. mm -hmm. print from, mm -hmm. a, from a natural mm -hmm. history book. That's the image he has. Mm -hmm. He's standing on the edge of the lake mm -hmm. and sort of looking down and just imagining all mm -hmm. the fish down there. So I also looked to see whether these swim at different levels. He's quite like that, but the Velsa, which are catfish, mm -hmm. certainly would be at the bottom. Um, I haven't found the plate mm -hmm. in the book. It may be an imaginary mm -hmm. one, or it may be just a page I haven't turned. Yeah. You had a question before, but we may have moved on, but we could ask it anyway. Um, I, I, yes, it comes from uh, an earlier point about rhythm and music, really. I've just I've observed in the archive the way that quite often in his writings, Abel would begin a paragraph yeah. and would stop mid-sentence mm -hmm. and then rather than sort of picking up again later from that point he would start all over again, again at the very yeah. beginning of the yeah. and it sort of yes. seemed to speak to what you were mm -hmm. saying about the way that it's yeah. almost like a piece of music and that there's a rhythm there that has to be maintained and so it, it almost seems yes. to be like a musician performing a piece of music and, well, and if you and make it, a mistake you go back to the beginning and you and it operates at the level of the sentence and you need mm. that flow and he has quite large handwriting and you know he will as, as, as already from Bulo notes in the in the essay he wrote about the manuscripts you do see that he very often for, for each new sentence he starts a new page and you you do get this wonderful effect where you can you know lay the different versions out alongside each other do you do something similar as well a I, that's interesting so i was i was thinking about this the other day quite coincidentally and that that you know the author has that luxury the translator doesn't often have that luxury but as i was uh, revising some of my versions and you know there's a sentence and you because you've got the computer you sort of move it around and you can very easily end up with a mismatch and, and, and feeling that what I did actually want to do was, you know, take my pen and write out the sentence again and and an interesting take the pen, not take the typewriter or the mm -hmm. computer, but take the pen and just get that flow. There's something about the rhythm of the hand and the rhythm of the sentence which mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. translate into the computer. I don't know if that's why. Mm -hmm. Max always wrote by hand and, and only would type up or, or have things typed up later. Um, but I do feel there's something about that. I do, you know, I, I work in notebooks. This is a first draft. It's terribly messy. It, and it will then go into the computer. But in a way, I feel I almost want to write it out in fair hand the way you used to when you were at school and you wrote out your essays again or your translations. Joe, you're lucky. I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> this, Anthea, is what I was just going to say. There is a huge problem about this because you dash this off and then the actual process of typing it up is tremendously time-consuming because you can't actually see what you wrote. So that is the downside of the handwriting method. <laughs> and I'm left-handed to make it more complicated. I found the house tier solution, domestic animals in the end. Right, I wonder Definitely about they're that. not pets. But not pets. this is actually a rather lovely sentence. Can I read it to you? Please. We are not alone in dreaming at night, for, quite apart from dogs and other domestic creatures whose emotions have been bound up with ours for many thousands of years, 
The smaller mammals, such as mice and moles, also live in a world that exists only in their minds whilst they are asleep, as we can detect from their eye movements. And who knows, said Austerlitz, perhaps moths dream as well. Perhaps a lettuce in the garden dreams as it looks up at the moon by night. <laughs> <laughs> a charming conceit, yes. actually. I wanted to, I mean, it gives me a, a, an excuse to, to say something else that will relate it. I, I wanted to come back to um, something to do with why all this matters, you know, why, why, why he writes in the way that you, something, something about the way he writes in the way that he does. Uh, because th th there are so many layers, aren't there? And there's so many dis digressions into the natural world, and into the history of architecture, obviously, and other uh, of the other arts, um, the history of, of, of cities, um, all told from a subjective point of view, which mm -hmm. has as much to do with forgetting as remembering, doesn't it? Yes. Um, and so this this makes it an extraordinarily moving mm -hmm. um, mixture, when, when given the subject matter and, and that the slowness with which the subject matter of, of, of Nazi atrocities comes up in each of the texts. It comes up extremely slowly and extremely arbitrarily. So I just wanted to ask you both what, what, what it must have been like, um, what it is like, uh, being responsible for, for making Zebald so, so, uh, so pop popular, so, so widely read. Um, because I think he was more widely read in English before he was read in German. Would, would, would that be right? I think that may be so, yes. I mean, I... Yeah. Yes, I mean, certainly, certainly there is a, a reception in Anglophone countries, and I mean, I think mm. the American market also has a lot to do with this, the yes. sheer size mm. of it that, that completely baffles German readers, and indeed mm. Max's German lector, mm. who says, mm. these, are, these are numbers I can only dream of. <laughs> and it is a picture of his mind, really, moving mm. in mm. among all these subjects, and through borders from reality into whatever we describe as unreality. But it was, to Max, you feel it was all equally real, if I make any sense saying that. Mm. This is a picture of a very, very original mind, and I think that is partly what's so appealing about it. And as for trying, you all a translator is always trying to catch the author's voice and trying to get inside the author's mind. Now, I was very privileged to be able to ask him anything I liked over Austerlitz, and over the first part of On the Natural History of Destruction, up to and including the Andersh essay I mentioned just now. Mm. So when he was tragically killed in a car accident, he had already been through the early part of the book, the Swiss lectures and the response to them. And his comments on my draft of the Andersh essay were found on his desk after his death. I had wondered, you know, I would wondered at the time, is there going to be an envelope on its way back to me? And with a delay of about three weeks, there was. And then, particularly for the English edition of that book, he had also added essays that he had written for publication in journals on... Peter Weiss and Jean-Améry born Hans Meyer, the resistance worker who suffered terribly in concentration camp and who um, then became a noted essayist. And I have uh, recently translated Irene Heidelberger Leonard's biography of Améry. I was so grateful to her. She wrote 
to say she approved of my translation of the Améry essay because with that and the Peter Weiss, I was on my own. And I kept thinking to myself, what would Max mm. have said to this phasing? And Irene put my mind very substantially at rest. <laughs> it was very nice for her. Uh, Campo Santo, in the German edition, includes those two essays on Weiss and Améry. But <clears throat> because it is a collection of all sorts of essays from different periods in Max's life, First, it begins with the book on Corsica, which he put aside to write Austerlitz, and I regret very much we didn't get that book on Corsica <laughs> as well. It's absolutely fascinating. Yes. And you can see themes from it in Austerlitz, actually, the little ghosts in the Welsh cobbler's stories yes. are based yes. on Corsican funerary customs. But um, after that, he has... The book is made up. It wouldn't be fair to call it a rag bag, but it consists entirely of items that had been published either in academic journals or in um, as occasional pieces, not necessarily in academic journals. There's a lovely review of a book uh, called Kafka at the Movies, <laughs> yes. and, uh, which is very amusing. And he did write quite a lot for for German broadsheets. Yes, he did. When he first yes. started publishing, he was always yes. saying, well, why don't you write something yes. that he'd cite? You know, they'll pay. Yeah, it's fine. Um, so, yeah, there's yeah. quite a lot of so things. Fortunately, fortunately, Campo Santo was still a long enough book in English without those two essays yes. in it. Otherwise, yes, we right. would have been a bit stuck, I think. I've always wondered what the uh, criteria were for selecting those pieces, in fact, because there are other essays um, published in academic journals or in, in literary mm. journals in, in Austria which, which aren't in either of the two mm. Austrian essay journals and are also not collected in, in those posthumous mm. volumes. Um, so I'd be interested to know. Yes. I suppose Sven Meyer might yes, he have might the have answer to that as to why the, those the editor of the German yes. original of Campo Santo. Yeah. You could yeah. ask him, couldn't you? I could ask him. I will. <laughs> What do you think Zeebald's uh, attitude is an awfully large question. What, what do you think he felt about his translators? I mean, I suppose all authors <laughs> want to be translated, um, but some authors also don't at the same time, don't they? <laughs> the translator's got a double duty always, and one is to the author, and the other is to the readers in yeah. the language of translation. And it really, it is a balancing act. We, we cannot but... Uh, describe translation in metaphorical terms. I once tried to do it, and it didn't come off. I said to uh, several people in the group, well, it's like being in a borderland, a no-man's land, but I'd already used like. So no, yeah. translator's yeah. yeah. mind briefly dwells in a place where there is neither language, just the shape of what is being said. And with luck, it comes down reasonably well and is then polished up in the language of translation and one of my listeners a young Italian writer he said yes and what is this place you speak about like and I realised I'd gone and used <laughs> another metaphor I could not yeah. manage without it Ian Galbraith uses rather a nice term in his mm -hmm. preface to Across the Land and the Water mm -hmm. his translation of that where he talks about, he's not really talking about the translator at this point, but he talks about what Edmund Said calls the median state mm -hmm. of exile or of living abroad, mm -hmm. and I think that would be quite a good metaphor for 
that moment, that state mm-hmm. of, of being in between, mm-hmm. but also of Sebald's own state of writing in one language and living in a country where that language was mm. not spoken, that's relativized, of course, by yes. working at university, writing books on German mm. literature, writing books in German literature. Um, but there is this sort of borderline state, mm. if you like, that, that he is writing from. And I think that fact also has a lot to do with the reception of his books uh, in English-speaking countries. Mm. You know, He's somehow one of us because he lived in our country or in our language. Yeah, I wondered if I could come back to that issue a little bit. Um, he is um, quite unusual in his popularity as a translated author in English. Mm. There's also a, an element of that, that large academic following that he has that's almost appropriated him as an English language writer. Mm-hmm. I just wondered, with those two sides of the question of, say, about sort of English-German connection, how important has he been for the reputation of translation itself uh, and translated literature in English and what do you make of how important is it that he is a translated writer within that kind of literary within his own literary reputation gosh I think I would have to ask you that question because in fact you're the student of English I'm, I read say about in German right <laughs> although I of course I teach in a department where he is much read in in English and I'm I'm, I'm supervising someone who's you know doing his best with the German but naturally is is reading him in English and there are lots of doctorates on say about but Simon if you if you are such a purist that you never wished and I'm not saying you are but some people are such purists mm. that they never wish to read a translation at all <laughs> uh, you are necessarily excluding a great yeah. deal of useful great and sometimes plain just good entertainment from the English language public. I mean, do you think Zeyvar's been important in making that point? Quite, yeah, I think so, yes. Yes, I do. I mean, it's not always that a translation will get widely reviewed, but his books were. Yes, that, that's true, actually. And I, I think it also requires, and I don't know how much this is beginning to happen, a, a new way of reading, an awareness of that what you're reading is a translation. So an actual appreciation of translation, not just of translated literature, but of mm-hmm. the fact of it being translated and a kind of reflection on the way you read it. So not just to read, say, about as another English author who, as maybe Ian Sinclair puts it this way in the film, Patience, um, filtered his texts uh, through another language, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I thought was an extraordinary um, Anglophone position, I suppose. Um, but as you know, as a, a special sort of category, and I think there is now beginning to be more aware, mm. awareness. Certainly, my own students yeah. have this dinned into them mercilessly. <laughs> but uh. it's an interesting point that he could have translated himself, but he evidently didn't want to. Could he have translated himself, or could he have written in English, which might have well, been rather different? Exactly. Yes, I think he was so much attached to his roots in the German language, really. Yes, that that, that is probably why he didn't. Absolutely. He was writing a little bit in English towards the texts. The, the texts are actually quite heteroglossic. Yes. You know, they're 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 quite multilingual. And again, this is a, tr- a translation problem as well. What do you do when you find a quotation in English mm-hmm. and you're translating into English? Yes. How do you flag it? Um, do you flag it? Do you put it in mm. italics? Do you put a little note in saying, "Actually, this is in English." Mm-hmm. Uh, you think of the the emigrants, the Henry Selwyn story. 
you know, any of the immigrants. Mm -hmm. and, you know, this is kind of discourse going on where the the characters are actually speaking English in the book that's written in German. But the diet, there is no dialogue. But you know, it only comes through at certain points as a marker, and that marker is quite hard to mark, mm -hmm. I suppose. Um. I wonder if I could answer Simon's question in my own way. I must say I'm um, uh, very much in, in awe of, of uh, Austerlitz and the immigrants in particular in English. It strikes me that uh, uh, those things, those works have made translation into, or foreguided translation into a kind of art in its mm -hmm. own right. Um, they are they're, they're mag magnificent uh, uh, items of of, of of moving literature in their own right, and I wonder if if, if partly that comes to not only with, with your own talent and, and, and you know we're looking forward to Joe's stuff as well coming out, um, but partly also because of the type of thing you've been saying about Zebel today, which is that he does sit across so many languages and so many cultures, and that has and that has almost nothing to do uh, with. Uh, you know, endless increasing of knowledge, but on the mm -hmm. contrary, endless fragmentation and endless forgetting mm -hmm. and endless efforts to, to remember. I just feel that his way of thinking is so embedded in the idea of translation. It's interesting, uh, you know about Ada's uh, group, there is a whole online group yes, of disabled translators, um, <laughs> and uh, it was started up by his Italian translator, and uh, a whole lot of them are getting terribly worried, because the word Schrebergart in English, in German, means what we call an allotment. And it's called a Schrebergarten because a guy called Schreber thought it up. And I think it was not he, but his son, who was one of Freud's patients. Yes, and yeah. one of the yes. case history. Yes. Yes. But anyway, so I realized very they, recently that they, they, they were all the Zebra translators. It was all behind them. It was in, it's in Austerlitz. And they were worrying about how could they possibly get over the flavour that it was Schreber who had invented this. <laughs> yeah. And I, I did contribute. <laughs> I said, look, I put in, as anybody would in translating this term into English, allotments. And Max was alive and well at the time, and he did not demur one yes. little bit. <laughs> yes, and I think that's interesting because uh, because we know how conscious he was of the <laughs> way he put the words there. So there's a tremendous temptation to overdetermine <laughs> and to read things in and to make it much more complicated than mm, it already mm. is. Absolutely. It's a lovely story there. I hope I helped cut the Gordian knot for one <laughs> or two of them. <laughs> they could just look at whatever you say for an allotment in their own language. Yes. Yes. Yes, I was thinking of that just coming down on the train, mm. passing those allotments. They're mm. probably the same mm. allotments probably, that Max yes, looks across yes. from the train. Um, yes, he comes down on that line yeah. from Norwich. Yeah. Yeah. So he, would have se he would have seen the the Clematis yes. and the common Clematis. He was charmed when I presented him with the name Traveller's Joy. I think he must not have come upon it before. No, I could I could equally yeah. well have given him old man's beard, which <laughs> might have been more appropriate for the gloomy mood of the narrator on his way to London for a night. But that might have been. But Traveller's you know, like Joy is beautiful. Yes. Much, yes. I quite agreed with him. He even wrote in on my draft. What a lovely name! <laughs> well, thank you very much, both of you. Thank you so much for, you. for coming on and talking about all these wonderful things. Thank you.